finish up our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And just a reminder, starting next Wednesday night, we'll be, uh, throughout the summer months, we'll be looking at a series entitled The Great Hymns of the Faith. And we'll talk about a specific hymn and tell you the story behind that hymn and then preach out of a text that that hymn could have been based upon. And so I think it'll be a, a great series. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, but tonight, to, to close out the Sermon on the Mount, the title of the sermon is The Four Pillars of a Proper Foundation. The Four Pillars of a Proper Foundation. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, which finishes chapter 7, which finishes the Sermon on the Mount. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead, be seated. You know, I think if you were to take a worldwide poll, if it was possible to do that, and you were simply to ask who is the greatest or who was the greatest spiritual teacher in human history, I don't think it would be close. I, I think most people would call out Jesus. I believe that they would say that he was a great, because even those who don't believe in him as Savior and Lord would still refer to him as a great teacher. Um, and I think the people in Jesus' day felt that way. That's why in verses 28 and 29, they were astonished because he spoke as one who had authority, not as the, as the scribes. Chapters 5 through 7 is the largest body of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. Uh, of uh, the largest section where he's just continually teaching through the Gospels. He closes this greatest sermon with the parable of two home builders. Now, he's really not talking about building a home. He's talking about building a life. He's talking about building maybe a marriage. Um, and the most important thing he says about building is not what you build, and it's not how you build it. Jesus says the most important thing is where you build it. It'd be better to build a log cabin on a rock than to build a mansion in a swamp, is what Jesus is getting at. I read an article this morning um, from 2014. There's a subdivision in Mesquite, Nevada called Highland Hills. Highland Hills. And the people began to notice that something was amiss in their subdivision. There were cracks in their homes, uneven roads, a strong smell of methane gas. A lady by the name of Barbara Locker, who lives there, says, we're finding out there's some serious things wrong with this subdivision. It's a sick subdivision. They went to the city government, and the city government had no answers, and so the homeowners association hired a private engineering firm, and they came in, and they bored some holes, and they found that eight of the houses were built on top of an old landfill, 20 feet underneath the homes. The original document showed that the developer, that the builder, was told this and not to build on that, that, that part of the land because it had such a poor foundation, but he ignored the warnings. I tell you that story because you can look at a life. If you were to drive through that subdivision, all of the houses would basically look the same from the outside. But some of them have some very real and serious problems on the inside. 
Likewise, we, we come to church on Sunday mornings and everybody basically looks the same on the outside. On the outside, we appear the same, but it's another thing to build a life that will last forever. Jesus states that the important thing is not in men, it's not in the materials, it's in the foundation. And remember, what, what did Jesus do for about the first 30 years of his life? At, well, say the 12 years before his ministry or so. What was his, what was his earthly father? So most likely, what was Jesus? A carpenter. And so when he starts talking about building a home, he's got the people's attentions because they wouldn't have, a lot of them wouldn't have considered him an expert in some things, but this would have been one of the things that they would have said, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about, so let's listen. I think there are three homes that everybody here needs. We need a home for the future, right? I go to prepare a place for you. Those of us who put our faith in Christ, we believe that he is building a home for our eternal future. But not only do we need a home for our future, we need a home for our faith. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? And so we need a home for our faith, a place where we can exercise our faith with one another. But we also need a home for our family. And that's the home that Jesus is talking about, I think, here. Now, these two homes, they face the same situation. Rain falls, floods come, wind blows. One makes it and one doesn't. Jesus says the difference is the foundation. Jesus, we would say, is the great home builder. Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so we would say tonight that the Lord has to build the house, otherwise we're laboring in vain if we're trying to build it on our own. Whereas he's the great home builder, Satan is the great home wrecker. He destroys homes, he destroys families, he destroys marriages. So if the difference is the foundation, what are the four pillars that that foundation should be built upon? The first pillar is what I call authority. Pillar number one is authority. Every family has a source of authority that they build their house upon, a basis for doing family the way they do it. For some people, the, the basis of authority is family tradition. You know, this is the way our family always did it. You know the story about the woman who, who used to cut off the ends of the ham and find, you know, generation to generation they were asked why and come to find out it was because grandma didn't have a big enough pan for the ham. And, uh, but it was family tradition. Everybody, everybody does it. And so some people build on the, their authority as family tradition. For other people, it's cultural standards. Well, what is, what is culturally acceptable? What is, what is the politically correct thing to do? And some people build that, their authority based on that. But the wise person builds their authority on God's word. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. And so we, we fear the Lord. He is the center of our life. And walking in obedience to him is the circumference. The word of God is the circumference. And so how do we build on that pillar of authority? As I got to thinking about this storm that comes, you know, it doesn't matter where you live in America, you're going to face some kind of natural potential disaster, right? You live out west, you face the earthquakes. You know, um, when I lived in California, I used to think, well, I, you know, I hope no earthquakes hit. N now that I've seen what California's become, I'm kind of thinking if it would just break off at the state line and drift out into the ocean, you know, we... They're already talking about seceding anyhow, so let's just let them become their own country. We just, you know. um, but you face earthquakes. If you come to the south, you face tornadoes. 
If you go up north, you're going to face flooding from the snow melting. And if you go to the east coast, you're going to face hurricanes. And so it doesn't matter where you live, there's going to be some kind of problem that you deal with, some kind of storm. Every family, if you're a family of one or a family of ten here, every family will face storms. They face pressures. They face problems. I think there's a little symbolism here. The rain is the pressure from above, right? Rain falls. Sometimes we feel pressure in our life because God is leading us to do something and maybe we're just kind of bowing up just a little bit against what he wants us to do and so he, he exerts a little pressure on our life to get us to follow his will. The floods represent pressure from below. You know, flood rises. Satan, spiritual activity breeds spiritual activity and so Satan will come against whatever God is trying to do. And then the wind represents the pressure from around right? Society is constantly putting pressure on us to conform into their image, to think the way they think. And so, so we face these, the storms of rain, wind, and flood in every life. So the authority for us has to be the Lord and his word. You know, from eyesight, you couldn't tell which of these two houses was strong and weak, which one would stand and which one would sink. Uh, you know, every couple, if you're married to, tonight, every couple faces challenges, don't they? Yep, they do. You know, there was only one perfect marriage, and that was Adam and Eve. And even that wasn't really perfect, but, but it was perfect in that they didn't have to deal with a lot of the problems that we have to deal with. For instance, Eve never had to listen to Adam compare her cooking to his mother's. Right? Never. Adam never had to listen to Eve compare him to all the other boys she had dated. Uh, they never had any in-law problems, right? Adam never had to worry about Eve running home to daddy when she got upset. Eve never had to worry about Adam bringing his mom into their problem. They had the perfect marriage until Eve ate him out of the house and home. Boom, boom, <laughs> Now, we're not Adam and Eve, okay? And so the, the reality is, the certainty is that conflict is going to happen. No marriage is immune. How many of you remember the comedian Red Skelton? They don't make them like red anymore, do they? I, I was reading just today, and I probably had read it before, but I was laughing out loud at my desk. Red Skelton's Tips for Marriage. Now, now you got to remember, Red was in kind of a patriarchal society, okay? So, and being a man, he, he kind of pointed his humor, well, here, here's, here's not all of them, but here's some of his tips for a happy marriage. Twice a week, my wife and I go to a nice restaurant for good food and companionship. She goes on Tuesdays, I go on Fridays. <laughs> we also sleep in separate beds. Hers is in Ontario, mine's in Tucson. <laughs> I take my wife everywhere, but she keeps finding her way back. <laughs> I asked my wife where she wanted to go for, her for our anniversary, and she said, somewhere I haven't been in a long time, and so I suggested the kitchen. She has an electric blender, electric toaster, and electric bread maker. She said there are too many gadgets and no place to sit down. So I bought her an electric chair. <laughs> Red Skelton said, remember, marriage is the number one cause of divorce. Statistically, 100% of all divorces start with marriage. Again, Red's right. <laughs> he said, I married Miss Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always. 
I didn't, I'm not, I didn't write these, okay, ladies? I'm, I'm just telling you what Red said. He said, I haven't spoken to my wife in 18 months. I don't like to interrupt her. <laughs> One more. He said, our last fight was my fault. She asked, what's on TV? And I said, dust. <laughs> now, you know, th those are all... Those are all just poking fun. But, but good marriages don't just happen, do they? I mean, if you've been married for a long time, a good marriage just doesn't happen. You have to work hard at it. It has to be built on a good foundation. And the first foundation that you should build your home on is the pillar of authority with Jesus and his word, the word of God, being the authority that we build on. You might be surprised, ladies, to know that the Bible will help you in your marriage. Did you know that? It will. Lady asked her husband to help with the dishes. He said, I'm not going to help with the dishes. That's woman's work. She said, no, it's not. It's, it's men's work. He said, who told you that? And she said, it's in the Bible. He said, no, it's not. And she said, 2 Kings 21, 13. I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. <laughs> so see, ladies, the Bible will help you in your marriage. All right, so the first pillar is authority. The second pillar is what I call accord. This is the idea of unity. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Adam's been naming the animals, and he notices something. There's a Mrs. Giraffe for Mr. Giraffe. There's a Mrs. Elephant for Mr. Elephant. There's a Mrs. Coyote for Mr. Coyote, but there's no Mrs. Adam for adam and so god says it's not good that he should be alone and you know the story he causes adam to go to sleep he takes a rib and makes eve and then in verse 24 there's this principle of unity he said therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh if you if you had that passage open i would encourage you to circle the words leave and cleave because i think there's a principle there um, and those are the two most important words. You know, when a child grows up, moves out, gets married, they have to leave, and they have to cleave. Jan and I will soon be married 33 years, and I've been preaching this leave and cleave principle for 28 years. Now, you say, why 28 and not 33? Because I've only been pastoring 28 years, but I've believed it long before that, okay? And, and so there's this principle of leaving and cleaving, and I've counseled couples at every church I pastored using this verse— and there's one common problem that's not in every couple's problems, but I find it repeated over and over again. You know what it is? I call it in-laws and outlaws. Because a lot of couples come and, and, you know, the family, the extended family gets brought into the conflict and, and really is sometimes part of the conflict. If you are an in-law, let me, let me give you a word to the wise, Okay especially if you're used to controlling things. You know, it's frustrating when your child gets older because when they're small, you can control things, right? You just pick them up or you jerk a knot. You, you can control things somewhat, but when they get older and move out, you really can't control things anymore. It's out of your control. And so the older they get, if you have that kind of mentality, the harder it becomes for you. You have issues once they get married. You, you still want to be in control, and, and, and they want to submit, and at the same time, they, they realize that their new allegiance is to their, to their mate. In the 1970s, a, a guy by the name of Salvador Mnuchin, I think is how you'd say his name, he termed these families enmeshed families. 
Enmeshed families allow members little or no autonomy, um, no personal boundaries. Rather than letting the married child go, they want to bring the new spouse into their immediate family. So they don't want to let go. They just want to incorporate one more body into their family, and that's called an enmeshed family. Um, that's not the way that it's supposed to be, I don't think. It's not the way that God says it works. It, it produces problems. Enmeshed families place the child in a difficult spot, between the rock and the proverbial hard place. Because, especially if you're a Christian and you have an enmeshed family, think of this. The, the, the child is put into a place where they understand the Word of God says, leave mo mother and father and cleave to their spouse. And yet, while, they, while they're trying to leave, the parents aren't letting go. And so somebody's going to be upset. The parents are either going to be upset because they force the issue and leave, or the spouse is going to be upset because he or she can't get out from under their parents. Um, you know, when a child gets married, it's time to cut the strings. Cut the apron strings and cut the purse strings. It goes both ways, you know, for, for, the, for the adults and for the parents. We have to cut, if, if we're adults, we have to cut the, the apron strings. You know, that's, the Psalms talks about, you know, children are like arrows in the quiver of a, a, of a soldier, marksman, and, and blessed is the man who has many of them. And, and what's the purpose of an arrow? An arrow's not to stay in the quiver 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and, and say, look, don't I have some nice arrows? The whole purpose of an arrow is to shoot it out, Right? And you want it to fly straight. And so we raise our kids with one purpose, to shoot them out into the world, and hopefully they fly straight and serve the Lord. So we have, to, we have to cut those strings, but if a child's old enough to move out and get married, they're old enough to support themselves. We have to cut the financial strings. That doesn't mean you don't help them if there's an emergency, um, but you have to be careful not to, to constantly enable them. Jerry Vines, great preacher. I don't know if you know the name Jerry Vines. He, he has some advice to in-laws that I read this week. Here it is. In-laws, four things. Practice hands off, mouth shut, hearts open, prayers on. And I think it's right. Think about that. He says, hands off, mouth shut, hearts open, prayers on. So after leaving, then the, then the person cleaves. Um, Y'all ever seen those Gorilla Glue commercials? I went and watched one on YouTube today just to, uh, just to be reminded of it. This gorilla comes, something breaks, and the gorilla comes up, and, you know, like a gorilla has pockets, but it gives some glue, and, and uh, they fix whatever it is that's broke. And, and the slogan is always the same, Gorilla Super Glue for the toughest jobs on planet Earth. The word cleave there is a word in the Hebrew that would have likened being glued together. Being, being stuck. See, because we're cleaving, Jan is stuck with me. I told her if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. Be, because, because we're cleaving, we're, we're stuck together. There has to be physical unity, emotional unity, spiritual unity. You know, when the storms hit and you work through things, something happens. You're depositing emotional currency into the bank that pays dividends later. Because through the years, you say things like, you remember back when we were going through blank? You remember how hard it was? But we made it through it. 
and our marriage is stronger because of it. I'll give you a story. It was January of this year. Michael Joyce's memory had been taken from him by Alzheimer's. He couldn't remember. The disease had advanced to the place where he had forgotten his wife, Linda. He knew her, but he didn't realize that they had been married for 38 years. But because he loved her and he was an honorable man, one evening he proposed to her. Now, the article I was reading, Linda says, you don't say to a person with Alzheimer's, oh, we've been, we're already married, we've been married for 38 years. Because they can't grasp that. She said, of course I will, thinking that he might not remember. But the next morning when they woke up, Michael looked at her and said, when are we going to do this? The day of the wedding. And by the way, when, when she invited her friends and family, here's, here's the invitation. She had to do all the planning, and so here's what she put on the invitation. And I quote, My adored hubby of 38 years suffers from Alzheimer's and dysphagia. Two nights ago, out of the blue, with tear-filled eyes, he asked me to marry him. Michael had clearly forgotten we were already married, but I absolutely went along with him and said I would be delighted to be his wife. In spite of his confused mind, he obviously knows and feels this is something he really wants to do. To Michael, it'll be our wedding ceremony, and to our friends and myself, a truly precious, memorable occasion. The day of the wedding, she wasn't sure that he would remember, but when they woke up, he told her, today's the day. And so they exchanged vows at a lake. After the wedding, Linda Joy said this, there's been a lot of sadness and a lot of frustration, and despite all of the fogginess, today has been pure joy. The first pillar you build on is the authority of God and his word. The second pillar you build upon is the, is the pillar of unity, the, pil the pillar of accord, being one together. The third pillar is what I call affinity. Can you remember some of you when you were newlyweds? Um, I do premarital counseling, and then I, I typically like to do a checkup about a month or two later and just see how the couple's doing. And um, <laughs> It's funny that couples don't realize how incompatible they are before they get married. I mean, they don't. You know, we, we, we think everything's fine, some of you men thought your wife has been complimenting you when she calls you a model husband. Let me just remind you that a model is a cheap imitation of the real thing. You know, we put models together when we were kids, right? It's not the real deal. Um, Dr. Cecil Osborne, in his book, The Art of Understanding Your Mate, says this. The difficulty of achieving a happy marriage is compounded by the fact that men and women are basically incompatible. They have goals, needs, emotions, and drives which are incompatible with those of the opposite sex. You know, if, if you don't know that that's going on when you get married, it doesn't take long to realize it. In premarital sessions, I've started, uh, I got trained recently um, in, a, in a program called SIMBIS, which stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And so one of the things I do is I have the couples take a personality profile. And basically, the premarital counseling, other than the scriptural foundation that I build into it, it's really designed to help them understand how the two personalities are going to work together. And I, I had an appointment on Sunday with a couple that, that I'll be marrying um, next month. And we were talking about personalities and, and how they, they mesh. And the whole goal is to prepare them for when they don't mesh, when there's disagreements. 
I read today about the senior adult guy who was in great shape. You know, Jack LaLanne shape. Some of you remember who Jack is. Some of you have to go home and Google him, okay? Um, but this guy was in Jack LaLanne shape. And somebody asked him, said, how are you so, I mean, you are solid at your age. How, how are you doing it? And he said, well, when my wife and I married, we agreed when we had a fuss, I'd go for a walk. And I've spent a lot of time outdoors. <laughs> Counselor to the wife said, do you think maybe part of your problem is you wake up grouchy? She said, no, I let him sleep as long as he wants. <laughs> Men and women are different. They, we talk different, don't we? I often tell couples, you know, that they, 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 we talk like this. These are, these are generalities. Now, some couples actually reverse it, but as a general rule, men tend to communicate through, through knowledge, through, through rational thoughts. They, they oftentimes are bulls in a china closet. They don't think what they're saying. They just spit it out because to them it's the truth. A woman tends to speak through her feelings, okay? That's why women cry at movies. You know, they, 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 they interpret everything through their feelings. And so, you know, the man comes home and he says, two plus two is four. He's just making a factual statement. And the woman says, I don't know if I like the tone of the voice he said that in. What, what's he mean two plus two is four? We, we communicate on different levels and we communicate oftentimes with more words and less words. You know, studies have said that we use speak so many words per day. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but I think men oftentimes use all of their words up at work. They've been talking all day long, and they come home, and they're like, oh, man, refuge. And the lady's been saving some of her words because he's the most important person in her life, and so she wants to use her words on him. But not only, not only do we save the words, but how we use them is different. I'll give you an example. The man comes home. The wife says, how was your day, honey? Great. So how was work? Fine. Great and fine. The man comes home and he asks the wife, how you doing, honey? Fine. The guy walks off thinking, great, she's fine, but guys, she is not fine. <laughs> if she gives you a one-word answer, fine, she is not fine, and you need to figure out what's going on. You ask, is something bothering you, honey? And she says, no. <clears throat> yes, there is, all right? Uh, I've seen, I've seen couples split up after weeks or months of marriage. Think about that. Let's say you have a factory job. We'll spend more, t it'll take you longer than that to learn the names of all the employees. We'll spend more time doing that. We'll go to seminars and read books on how to be a, a great business owner. But we don't invest the same effort in being a great husband or a great wife. Why? We, we, we get married, we just assume, well, it's going to be peachy from day one. Well, day one might be, but day two is typically not. You know, and, and sometimes when there's marital disagreement, it's not uncommon for, cu for couples to, somebody in, in the relationship to wonder, you know, I wonder if there's somebody more compatible uh, than this person for me. I read this morning about Suleiman Goreski of Izmar, Turkey. He divorced his wife of 21 years after a bitter six-year court battle. He then joined a dating service where he had to fill out a written profile. And so he filled out his profile, and then the computer spits out the most probable matches for you. 
ranking them. From a list of 2,000 prospective brides, the computer selected his former wife. Unbeknownst to him, she had signed up for the same dating service. What did he do? He remarried her nine months later, after the divorce. He said, and I quote, I didn't know she had been the ideal counterpart for a marriage. I decided to give it another try by being more understanding toward her. Affinity. We have to understand that we're different, but we have to allow our differences to bring us together. So there's the, the pillar of affinity, the pillar of accord, the pillar of authority. One more, and I'm done. The fourth pillar is the pillar of allegiance. By this, you know, who, who is your allegiance to? I'm talking about having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to build a home that's going to last, you both have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why the Word of God says not to be unequally yoked. What fellowship has light with darkness? And, and you know, that's the thing that's missing in a lot of marriages. And, and folks know something's missing, but they can't figure it out. They know that, you know, they've got good jobs, good cars, a nice home, beautiful kids. And yet something's missing, and, and they have no clue what it is. And it's Jesus. If Jesus becomes the center of your relationship, the center of your marriage, there are some real benefits. Purpose. The benefit of purpose. You understand the purpose for God bringing the two of you together. Principles. You learn principles like kindness and, and hospitality and honesty and responsibility and love. Um, you learn peace. When there's problems and two people love the Lord, you can have peace. Because you understand all things do work together for the good to them who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And you have power. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in both of you. I want to close with a story that even if you don't like golf or have never played golf, I think you'll still understand that this story is both humorous and tragic. It's a true story. It was the 1999 British Open. I remember watching it on TV. It's estimated 300 million people were tuned in to the last hole on the last day. A Frenchman by the name of Jean Vandevald had a three-stroke lead. Now, what that means is the 18th hole was a par four. He had six shots to get it into the par four, get it into the cup, and win the tournament. Now, to, to show you what that's like, even hackers like me I often get double bogeys on par fours, okay? So, so a, a six for a professional golfer on a par four should have been no problem. He steps up to the tee box. It was 480 yards to the win. There were, th this, this marshy creek crossed over. It was in Carnoustie, Scotland. And this marshy creek crossed the, the hole in a couple of places. All he had to do was hit three shots to the green, putt three times, and he wins the claret jug. Well, caddies have these books called yardage books. You ever watched a golf tournament or you've seen it on TV where they're flipping through this little book and they're looking at it and they're talking, the caddy and the golfer are talking. What they've done is typically they have walked the course before the tournament begins and they've made notes in the yardage book. If I end up here, here's what I want to do. If I end up here, here's what I need to do. And so the book told Vandevald, take a short iron which you only hit typically about 140 yards and put it out into the middle of the fairway short of the creek. But he decides to pull out his driver. Now, drivers, you can hit a whole lot farther, but you typically don't always know where they're going. And sure enough, 
he pushed it far right. So now he's 240 yards from the green, but he's in high grass. The book says, if you end up over there in high grass, take a short iron, pitch it back out into the fairway, take your third shot, go for the green. Not Vandevald. He takes out a two iron. He hits it as hard as he can, and it goes about 200 yards, and it hits the railing of the bleachers and bounds backwards 40 yards into grass high enough you could lose a horse in it. Now he's laying two. He finds his ball. Again, the book says, just pitch out. Well, he tries to go for it, and he hits it a little too firm. He blades it, if you know what that means, and he ends up in the creek. So now he's, got, he's at three shots, and he's in the creek. You see the picture there? He took his shoes off, rolled up his pants, and stepped into the water. He was debating whether or not he wanted to try to hit it out of the water. He decided not to. Thankfully, he made one good call that day. He took a drop. What that means is you drop it on the side, but it counts as a stroke. So now he's laying four next to the creek. Has two shots to get it in the cup to win. His fifth shot, he hits into this huge bunker. So now he's in the sand. And he has one shot to win. And now he's thinking, I'm not trying to win. I'm just trying to, to get it on the green in one and one putt and tie. He does. He gets it onto the green, about six feet from the cup. He puts it in, but he loses the playoff. And he's never won a major tournament since then. Never even been in the running for a major tournament. Why did John, John Vandevald lose the British Open? Only one reason. He knew the book, but he didn't go by the book. He trusted in himself more than he trusted in the book. If you want to build your marriage on the rock, it's not enough just to know the book. You need to trust the book more than you trust yourself. Go by the book, and you'll have a love that lasts, hopefully, a lifetime. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have your word, which is a roadmap in which we can live our lives. Uh, the principle that Jesus says here about building our life on a sure foundation, Lord, we understand the only foundation that will last is the foundation of Jesus. He is that chief cornerstone. If he's not placed properly in our life, everything else can fall apart. So Lord, tonight I pray for folks who are here, maybe some who have never trusted him, that tonight would be the night they trust him. For others maybe who have dethroned him and have relegated him to a back part of their heart and said, you know, Lord, I'm going to make the decisions for a while. Lord, I pray that today they would re-surrender to your lordship in their life. Lord, be pleased with our obedience. Your spirit has spoken, and now we pray that um, we would just do what your spirit is drawing us to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.